Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Comstock, and welcome to We Happy Few, the podcast that allows veterans and their families to tell their stories. My name's Lane Morris, and uh, I served in the United States Army. Uh, I joined in 1983 and uh, ended up a Sergeant First Class in the Utah Army National Guard 19th Special Forces Unit. I was an 18 Charlie, was my MOS, which is the engineer sergeant or the demolition guy on a Special Forces team. So you joined in 83. So were you guys married at the time? No. No, I'd just gotten back from uh, from an LDS mission and wanted to, I'd always wanted to join the military. And so that seemed like a good opportunity. I, I think my parents were not as um, enthusiastic about that. And, and at that point, you know, at age 21 or whatever, I, I think I felt like I had enough distance there that I could uh, just go ahead and do it and not worry about what they thought. So what what was wrong? What, why didn't your parents want you to join? Well, I think it was it was soon enough after the Vietnam War, and and my family was stationed in Thailand for uh, seven years during the Vietnam War. So my parents saw that war from a fairly up close and and personal perspective as as men came and went, and they um, dealt with it on different levels and for different things. And so I think, you know, all things being equal, they would have preferred that I do something else. It's it's not that they were against it or um, thought it was a bad idea. I think they just thought there was better things that I I could do. And why special forces? You know, I just, I, I wanted to do all the, all the cool, all the cool stuff. So can you talk about some of your deployments? While serving in the special forces, yeah, you know we'd go all all over the place. Um, one of the things that that maybe in hindsight wasn't the smartest thing is I only had limited amount of time because I had a had a full time job, and so you know every year when the mission comes up and and the mission is somewhere like Fiji or uh, the Maldives or you know the Philippines or Thailand or, or some of those really great places to go and operate, um, I, I always picked those rather than career advancement. And so I was I was like the oldest E six in the in the history of the of the army and they kept bugging me because I hadn't gone to the advanced NCO academy to to qualify for E seven. But I always had a choice between going to it was always going to, you know, Fiji or Vanuatu or Guam or, or somewhere. We were always in the Pacific or islands of the Pacific or the Far East. And so, um, I, you know, I just not being in it for the career advancement or the money, I was pretty happy to be in E6 and go to some fantastic places until finally, I, really just luckily, prior to just prior to Afghanistan, uh, we got assigned to go to South Korea, I think it was. Um, and I'd been there a bunch of times. And that was the point where the scale finally tipped for me. And I said, all right, right South Korea or ANOC? I guess I'll go to ANOC. So I went to, I went to uh, ANOC and I, you know, the, 
the promotion list comes out and I'm for the entire state of Utah, I'm number one because I've been an E6 for like 14 years. <laughs> so talk to us about Afghanistan. What was that like when you got that notice? It was it was awesome. I mean, y- you spend your whole career training and you go to you go on realistic missions, but they're not combat missions. And if you're in special forces, I mean, any combat arms, I mean, that's what you're training for. And so I missed out on a couple other good um, operations, Panama and some of those uh, other ones, the first Gulf War. And so when finally uh, we got notified in November of 2001 that we were going, I I I have to admit I was thrilled. I was so excited. My my uh wife kind of sat back with kind of a look of awe on her face about why I was so excited to go, but I I couldn't wait. So, uh Lisa, would you take a minute, introduce yourself and then tell us uh what your thoughts were when he got activated? So, my name is Lisa Morris and I remember when he got activated, he was on the phone and he started jumping up and down. He was so excited. He just, he really couldn't stand it. And we had four little kids, which is why I'm looking at him with a face of awe because I realized, oh, he's going and I'm here. But he was, he explained it to me as if you were a cashier and you trained for years to be a cashier and you never got to ring up a sale, he finally got to ring up a sale. So I understood he was excited and so support him. Well, and, and I mean, you remember what what the country was like then. You you could have given your average American with no military training or, or weapons training or anything, you could have just given them a stick and pointed them in the general direction and said the bad guys are that way, and they'd have, they'd have started walking. So um, to be the one tapped on the shoulder to say, you know, we need you to go, that was I looked at it as a huge honor, still do, um, as a huge honor that when it, you know, when it was, um, when it hit the fan and uh, it was time to go, that my country tapped me on the shoulder. That's uh, I felt it was it was quite uh, prestigious, and uh, I was honored and thrilled to be able to do it. So you get to Afghanistan, two thousand one. We uh, were activated, I think we reported December 5th, if I remember, um, to Camp Williams. And then uh, we bounced around Fort Campbell, Fort Knox, um, and then we ended up in Uzbekistan. And we were in Uzbekistan, I think, till March. And then uh, we, were the, we, were the quick, we were the quick reaction force out of Uzbekistan, which is just right across the border um, from Afghanistan. So we were there until May, and sometime in May we moved right we moved into Afghanistan. What was that like the first time you get into Afghanistan? It was a little bit it's a little bit surreal because the entire time I mean you're doing things that you've practiced doing for twenty years in my case, almost twenty years. And so as you're doing these things that are very routine, you have to keep almost pinching yourself and reminding yourself, "Hey, no, this is this is real, and this counts." And uh, you know, all these things that I've trained to do, um, I'm doing them, and it's the real thing. And so it is. It's kind of a surreal thing as you go through. Okay, this is how we get off a plane, and this is the perimeter we set up, and. We're not all just taking a knee and then, you know, kind of taking a nap because you know it's not real. Um, you know, it is real. <laughs> so it uh, it adds, it's a heightened sensitivity, a heightened senses to to do all that stuff, but realize that this is a, at a much more elevated level than just, than just training. So while on the quick reaction force, do you remember the first time that first call out? I, you know, I'm trying to think. I don't think we actually ever. We got on a plane. We never actually landed and had to go do anything while we were on the the QRF. Um, and so we were mostly just growing beards and planning for 
planning for for going in. Um, so and, and then running the uh, the CJ Soda, for the, the Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force. Somebody's got to run all the you know all the operations from a support system. So you take your turn in there, and and that's a lot of no fun. Um, so what was it like that you, know, you talked about this being being real? Mm-hmm. So that first time you're out on a mission, there's enemies in front of you. How do you prepare it, for that? You you know you you I guess you really don't. You don't. It's one of those things that's so great about saying you've been there and done that is that you now you know how you're going to react because at that point you don't know. And I remember that first combat combat uh, patrol into in Afghanistan was just exactly that. I mean, you just we got on our ATVs and we're just checking out the little AO or the area of operations we were assigned to and trying to figure out get our bearings so to speak. And uh you know, you get your you get your weapon and you load that thing up and you realize I got to be ready to shoot this thing. You know, I don't have a I don't have a suppressor on, or a, a what were those things called? The miles the miles gear the, the, the layers <laughs> the, yeah. So it's a laser basically. It's like a laser right like laser tag for training. Yeah, there's, there's not a laser gear. There's not one of those uh, things you screw into the end of the barrel to to help it fire. You know, this isn't anything like that. This is um, the real deal. And when I pull the trigger, um, hopefully somebody is going to be on the other end of that of that uh, bullet. And so, yeah, it was it, it's a, it was a whole series for weeks of wow, this is I'm doing this for real, and it's weeks of that before you start to be on the second and third time on different things, and you kind of um, calm back down, I guess, a little bit. I just I remember when we got to Afghanistan and the team we had met uh, that met us at our new uh, area of operation; those guys seemed so calm and relaxed and uh and i thought wow those guys are you know those guys are cool customers there and then a couple of months later as another group came in to replace us i remember looking at those guys and and thinking man those guys are wired tight they're they're all wound up i wonder why are they so what are those guys so jumpy about and then i realized oh that was probably me a couple of months ago and so you, you just you, you know, I don't think the human body or the human mind can can maintain that heightened level of uh, hyper alertness and um, that you know knowledge or that that awareness that this is the real deal. And pretty soon you just kind of get into your routine of the way you've always done things. This is how we go on a patrol. This is how we react to fire and this is you just those things kind of go back to to what you've been taught and so it's not until the you know something actually you get a firefight and um you realize that that it's you know people are dying and they're not going to have you know the guy with the god gun is not going to zap them and and their beeping shuts off and they get back up and we do the whole scenario over again but um that was just weird to to have those many that many firsts, I guess. Yeah. Were you able to communicate with home at all at this time? And this is early two thousand one. Yeah, we had we had a couple of satellite phones, and so um, there was some. You know, we'd call with a satellite phone. We'd call the states to some exchange, and then they'd call our spouses. And I don't know if 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 it was even on the up and up. I don't know if it was a cell phone companies. I don't know what, I never did get the full story on how that worked, but, um, they didn't want you to do it a whole lot, but yeah, I, I talked to Liesl quite a bit. And of course they had sensors on there. So, you know, anytime I'd, I'd say something to her that was, uh, even the least bit, you know, what am I doing or, or where am I? They'd cut the, cut the line and you'd have to start over again. I it's kind of ridiculous. And there's nobody listening. So, Lisa, what was it like to get those phone calls? So I lived for the phone calls. I always had my phone with me. And, and so it was it was life for me. 
And how did you help your children understand where their dad was? Well, you know, that's interesting. I try not to talk that much about it, but in talking with our oldest child last night, he knew where Lane was and he was telling everybody. But at the time, we weren't supposed to be telling everybody. And we just found out last night that he was telling everybody, but he was only 11. So, you know, he wasn't affected or worried. And so I don't think the younger ones really knew. They knew dad was gone, but they weren't worried like I was all the time. So how I dealt with that is I kept extremely busy. I had two part-time jobs and four kids and a house and had to do everything. So grocery shopping, chores, lawn mowing, raising the kids. And I ran at the time. I was a really big runner. And so every day I ran at least had to be three miles minimum. And if it was only three, then it was fast. So I basically let out my frustrations through my run. And that saved me the most. And then my friends. I had very, very close friends. Just uh, mostly just afraid because I knew he was in danger. And I, <laughs> so I would scour the news always because I didn't know where he was. And so I would watch um, Fox News and CNN and watch for any bit of like firefight. And then based on what he was telling me, I could, I eventually, I figured out exactly where he was. And so then for me, that was a relief because, okay, now I know where he is. And then I knew what to watch for. So the unknown is really difficult to deal with. And then being in the National Guard, we really didn't have a support system. We were pretty much on our own. And once in a blue moon, we got together with some of the other spouses, but it wasn't uh, good support. And luckily, our neighborhood was fantastic. And like I said, I had a couple of very, very good friends that I I leaned on for support. I I mean, I didn't like to call. I didn't like talking. It, It... it um it didn't serve any purpose for me it was simply uh you know hey how you how you doing good how you doing and i mean and that's about all you can say and then you're just miserable because you're not there and you've just been been intimately reminded that you're not there and there's nothing you can do about it and um and so it's a it's a weird you know, you're attracted. You want to call, but you know it's not going to do any good, and it's probably just going to make you more miserable. And so, but you, you just—I don't know. Like we're just programmed. You got to call. And yeah, so, you had to call, or else I would have. Yeah, it wasn't done about. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't about you. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't about you. <laughs> but also with the calls, I became a very good liar. So he'd say, "How's it going? Oh, everything's great. Everything's wonderful." And at the time, we had just moved into a new home, and we hadn't sold our other home. And so I was trying to manage finances, paying two house payments, and it was beyond stressful. It was over the top. And most of the time, I, when I woke up in the morning, I set a goal to make it to lunch. And then I'd make it to lunch, and then I'd set a goal to make it till the kids got home from school. And then I set another goal, make it to dinner. And so I just lived every day just a few hours at a time because it was so stressful and so hard as a single parent, which I'd never really experienced before. And so I learned great compassion for others that were single parents. You can't, you know, you can't call up and say, oh, yeah, honey, yeah, I almost got shot. It was so close. I mean, you just can't say anything like that. And so it's just got to be, yeah, we're having, sure, we're having fun. It's great. So we did kind of um, work out a terminology, just say, I'm going to work tomorrow. And so I don't know if you knew, but that's when I would start watching the news to see if there were any firefights somewhere. And that is how I was able to figure out where you were. 
So when were you wounded? And can you tell us tell us when that happened and, and what happened? That was uh, July 27th of 2002. So we had been, uh, we had been, we had the responsibility. You get a target, you know, somebody, a, a target that you're after. And we were after um, a couple of different, we had a couple of different missions or targets. And one of them, there was a couple of guys that had, had come into the area from the Middle East. And the intelligence was that they had a whole bunch of anti-tank mines and they were recruiting locals and training them on how to how to set up these anti-tank mines um, to remote detonate to uh, take take us out. And so we were after those couple of guys. And the other, at the same time, uh, we were after a um, a finance director for for Osama bin Laden, the guy out of Canada, and um, we were. We were chasing him around too, and and uh, they they these two came together in a little town not far from us, and so kind of simultaneously, um, we went after both of them on the same day because they were so close; they were like six hundred yards apart. And so we had gotten one of the bomb makers, I think, a week earlier, and so it was just one bomb maker left, and so we raided this compound and got the other bomb maker. Uh, that morning. And so as the rest of the, I think half of my team was there. So six guys out of, the, out of the team were there. And we had a whole bunch of our Afghan militia that we'd been training and working with. About 25 of them were there. And so we, as we kind of finished up that compound uh, or the guys were kind of exploiting it for the intel, um, my boss said to me, hey, you know, Morris, go check out that other compound it's only 600 yards from here let me know what what's there what if we need to get there the 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 uh, finance guy had a satellite phone and so when he'd use it we'd get notified and see the see the exact location of of that of where he dialed the and he'd use it that morning so he'd use that satellite phone at that location 600 yards so we knew it was an isolated compound out on the middle of the out on the end of this village and so Myself and uh, four other guys took off through the wheat fields, find this location, got to that location and confirmed it was this kind of an isolated compound, you know, quarter acre, typical Afghan compound with a wall around it. And and, uh, as I kind of looked through the gate, which was kind of half cracked open, you could see five or six guys in there that were clearly from the Middle East. They weren't they weren't Afghans, certainly not farmers. They had their their uh, AK-47s slung on their shoulders, which was kind of kind of weird. And uh, I wondered, you know, it seemed to me that they knew that we were coming. Um, that there was probably communication between those two compounds about us. And so, I uh, they didn't want to come out and talk to us. And so, I radioed my boss and said, "Hey, this, you know, we definitely want to." We want to exploit this compound, but they're not cooperating at all. So he said, "All right, well, we'll be there, and we'll be there as soon as we're done wrapping this up." So we sat out in front of this compound, myself, and I had a guy on each corner. Um, we had, uh, I think, we had a, a, probably a dozen 82nd Airborne soldiers with us too. So I had one of them on each corner of this compound, so nobody could come in or leave. And we probably sat there for 45 minutes, and half the village gathered just to watch, you know, how they, I mean, they don't have TV and, you know, anybody with guns and ammo, I mean, that's, that's great entertainment. So they'll, they'll stick around all day just to watch you stand there. So, oh, there's probably a couple hundred people and it made me a little bit nervous because we got, you know, bad guys that we're guarding, keeping in while the village has got us surrounded. And, uh, but the village, you know, it's a typical village. They're, they're, People just want to be left alone, and and uh, this is a little bit of a distraction and entertainment for them. Anyways, we sat there for forty five minutes. Finally, the rest of the group shows up, and uh, these guys still didn't want to come out. Our interpreters wanted, thought they could communicate with them. Thought they spoke a couple of different dialects. Um, thought they could communicate with them, 
And so, uh, you know, none of us thought that was a good idea. But the, but the Afghans, you know, they just they love to talk before before a fight and uh, see if they can talk each other, you know, this side or that side or whatever they can negotiate. But um, finally, uh, finally, my boss said, all right, you, you guys can go into that compound and try and talk with them. There was a, a wall just inside the compound, probably four feet high. So the edge of the compound, the wall we were on, kind of formed a T, with the outside of the wall being uh, the top of the T, and then the base of the T was this four-foot wall. So he said, we'll try and cover you, but just kind of you know stay low below that wall, and then we'll see. And uh, this was early enough on that the whole suicide, you know, suicide bomber or just going out in a blaze of glory didn't hadn't really... I, th- I think we'd thought it was a possibility, but at that point, you don't really think that any sensible person is is going to um, want to die and take and just take as many people as they could with them. And I'd sat there for forty five minutes, and you know, if they'd uh, if they'd wanted to to be effective, they should have attacked us then, where we had the odds were, you know, about even instead of overwhelming odds against them. But uh, so our our two guys kind of came in low behind that wall, and uh, the five or six guys had kind of snuck up to the corner. So there's really, you know, five or six of them and our interpreters, and then five or six of us. So you got about, you know, 10, 15 people all within about five feet of each other, just separated by this wall. So when our interpreters started talking, kind of gave their position away. These guys just popped up, leaned over the wall, and just shot them point blank in the face and, and killed them both just instantly. And and uh, and as they did that, um, they were throwing grenades over the wall at the rest of us. And, of course, we returned fire until the grenades started raining down, and then we backed off. And... Um, as I, I had the the two o three the grenade launcher on the bottom of my rifle, and so as they were heading towards the back of this compound, um, I thought I could I thought I could get them with the two o three because I couldn't shoot through the wall, couldn't see them, but I could shoot the back of the wall toward the back of the compound that they were running to. All I got to do is hit that back of the wall as they get there and uh, let the shrapnel get them. So. I popped up. I thought all their grenades had gone off. I popped up to shoot, and just as I pulled the trigger um, and felt the recoil of the two o three, I just felt something punch me in the eye, um, and that was just a hand grenade that they'd thrown that I, I, did, I didn't think they could throw a hand grenade that far. They were a long way away at that point, but you know, time does funny things to you there, and so that grenade went off, and a piece of shrapnel from that grenade hit me. I got a bunch of it in the face and in the eye, but uh, a one one good sized piece hit me right in the corner of the eye, and uh, bounced back and uh, cut the optic nerve on my right eye, so it instantly blinded me. I think this is a great time to take a break and hear from the businesses that are making this podcast possible. If you support us and what we are doing, please support them. Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Jason Lee. Listen to our free podcast, Voices of Reason, unless you enjoy screaming matches. Nope, you're not going to hear that with us. You'll hear folks who may disagree, but seek to understand different views. That's Voices of Reason on the KSL Radio app or wherever you find interesting podcasts. So what are you? So what are you feeling? What are you thinking at this moment? At that moment, um, I couldn't figure out what had happened. I thought they were too far away for a hand grenade. It's just—it's amazing how time, uh, the perspective on time, is so warped there. Because I—I I mean, I thought I know I'd been hit, and I stood—I was still standing there, and I thought, well, my rifle must have. Um, 
malfunctioned, you know, built by the lowest bidder, all, all that type of thing. I thought my rifles malfunctioned. But I could still feel my hands, and so I know my rifle didn't blow up. Um, and those guys are too far away for a hand grenade. So one of those, somebody must have got, I didn't see him, and somebody got a shot at me and shot me in the eye. And I'm standing here with my, with my brains oozing out the back of my head. And this is what it's, you know, I'm, I'm about to feel the lights go off and, and, uh, and I, and the thought occurred to me, wow, and I'm still, I'm standing here. And so I thought to myself, wow, I'm about to die. I am dying and I'm going to be dead standing here. And they're going to be talking about me forever about how Morris heroically just, he took it and he just stood there dead. And then I, of course, I realized, you know, a split second later, oh, I'm, well, I'm not dead. And I don't know what happened, but I probably ought to move from where I am right now. So I took a step back and I tripped on something, fell on my butt. And, um, and somebody grabbed me and kind of pulled me away. So it was probably, I don't know, six months later, I meet the team back at uh, Fort Bragg. And so we're all, you know, as you do, you, you get back together. And so we're all laughing and, and joking about everything. And so, um, I tell them, Hey, it was, you know, it was pretty cool how I just stood there and took it, you know, pretty good huh and people were looking at me buddies are going what are, what are you talking about i'm like you know how i just took that whack right in the head and then i just stood there They're like no you you got hit you pretty much went down like a sack of potatoes <laughs> no no it was a long time i stood there no no you just fell right down uh, man you guys just ruined my whole you know i've been telling people for months now how yeah i I just stood there and took it. And So, Liesl, how were you notified that Lane was wounded? I was at a family reunion at his parents' home in Vancouver, Washington, and I got a phone call from a guy who said, hey, I'm a friend of Lane's. So I just thought to myself, wow, you must not be a very good friend because he's not here. And he said, oh, yeah, I, I know he's not here, there, um, but... Um, I just, uh, so he was calling, and I thought he was calling for help because I worked at Delta Airlines at the time, and Lane and I and another um, soldier and his wife had gone on R&R together, and so I was able to help her get flights and and to go do R&R. So I thought he was calling to get help with R&R, and so that was the perspective that I was approaching the con conversation. And he said, no, um, so there's been a little problem. And I said, okay. And he said, um, so I was just calling to let you know that Lane's okay. And then he told me a little joke that Lane told him to tell me so I would know that it was from Lane. And, and I said, okay. And I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, I can't tell you. And I said, well, where is he? Well, I can't tell you. And so I was kind of mad. And I was like, okay, well, thanks for calling. And I hung up. And I just ran right to the Internet and started looking up. And sure enough, there was stuff on of ambush on the Internet already. And so I knew that um, two soldiers had been um, seriously wounded in that firefight. So I knew at that time that one was Lane. So pretty much I freaked out. And made some dumb choices in hindsight. Our kids um, were scheduled to start school in like a week. They were on a track system. And so rather than leaving the kids at his parents, I loaded up all four kids and we went out to the airport and we flew home where I didn't have any family support and made the kids go to school on that Monday, which that's so dumb. And um, I just freaked out pretty much. But, okay, so if we can backtrack just a little bit. Because I worked for Delta Airlines, I knew a flight attendant who was in Lane's unit 
who wasn't able to go to Afghanistan because he had been wounded in uh, in Korea on the earlier mission and um, injured. injured. So he was injured. Yeah. And so I called him and said, hey, I just got a call. And he said, I'll find out. So he made a couple of calls and it was pretty quick that I'd been confirmed that yes, there was a, it was a firefight, not an ambush. And yes, Lane was wounded and yes, somebody else was wounded. And like I had said earlier, me not knowing stuff is the worst for me. And so that was really good to know. And then I just waited for information. When did you tell your children? Oh, they knew right away, right away that something had happened. Because, you know, I was already freaking out and the family was all, you know, in a kind of, I don't know how to say it. Just everybody was upset and not sure what to do. And I was, you know, whatever, upset, very upset, (laughs) very, very upset. (laughs) You know, uh, it's only a, it's only a, like I said, it's that, that compression of time. But as I was standing there. You know, thinking, wow, I'm dead. That, you know, in that instant when that's the conclusion you come to that, oh, you're okay, you're dead. Um, I mean, that that's the that's the only thing that really hits you is that, wow, I'm not going to see my children, my family again uh, in this life. And. That was, I mean, that was, that was complete despair is the only way I can, I can describe that. You you don't, I guess you don't, you don't plan on dying. You know, I didn't plan on going to Afghanistan and dying. Um, and so when you suddenly realize it, and I, I know it's weird, you would think you'd, uh, you'd be thinking about that beforehand, but when it suddenly hits you that, wow. Here I am, and I'm dying, and I'm not going to see my family again. That it was, it was, that was, I've never been experienced a low that low. That it was just, it was utter despair. I, I could not believe it, how badly I felt. So how did you come back from that? What, what happened? At what point do you realize it's not the end of the world? I'm still here. Yeah, I mean, and, and. I mean, for me, it seemed like a long time, but again, it was like a half a second. And half a second later, you realize, well, I don't know what happened, but I'm still here. And that was almost, that was euphoric, really. That's, you know, the equivalent, you, your boss calls you in cause, and you think you're going to get fired, and instead he gives you a promotion. Um, and that's what it felt like to me. I realized, well, I don't know what's wrong. You know, other than my eyes, my eye is gone. I know that. But other than that, I'm alive and uh, uh, I can, you know, I got two eyes and the other one seems to work just fine. So that was, that was, uh, it was to go from being so down to so up was kind of, um, that's quite the roller coaster ride to 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 go from those depths to that height. So how long before you're able to to reach out to Lisa and let her know where you're at and what's going on? So that was a it was a Saturday that I I got whacked Saturday afternoon sometime. They medevaced me um to Germany and we we'd had another uh another guy wounded who had taken a bunch of shrapnel in the brain and he he was not uh, stable enough to evacuate. And so they just had that C-17 sitting at, at Bagram waiting just for the two of us. And, um, we took off that night for, uh, for Launchstuhl in Germany and got there. That would have been a, so we would have got there Sunday. The, the, um, the medical people, the U.S. medical people were un- were were unsure they didn't they just didn't have the experience with a with with shrapnel on the brain and the eye all that involved they didn't want to do the surgery they weren't comfortable 
doing that surgery, and so they had a, a relation, an existing relationship with the Germans for uh, some of those diff- German University Hospital hospital for some of those difficult cases, and so they sent me over to the uh, to the Hamburg University Hospital um, to have the shrapnel removed, and that was on Monday. They removed the shrapnel, and Liesel showed up um, on Tuesday after. Tuesday afternoon or or something. So she got there pretty quick. Yeah. So are you worried about her reaction when she finds out kind of what happened or what are you thinking at this point? Well, at that point, see, I, I was thinking it it's all good. I did, you know, I let her know that I'm okay. And uh, so this will all be fine. I, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm not all that smart when it comes to females and all that stuff i'm thinking this will be great you know i can't we'll get we'll uh we'll get to see germany a little bit and you know i'm thinking about this is a this will be fun i hadn't really realized that she'd been that i'd probably created more problems than i'd solved by reaching out to her and so yeah when she came in and um i was happy to see her and she was more a bundle of you know nerves and anxiety and all that kind of stuff at that point i'm uh, you know i had all the knowledge i knew okay i'm blind in the right eye but other than that i'm fine but you had called me from the um homburg university hospital yeah the nurses got you a phone and you called me (laughs) (laughs) yeah so we had talked on the phone so i knew that he was there and had you told me that they had done the surgery so whether the DOD knew that you'd called me, you had called me. And um, so on my my end, it took the Army 31 hours to officially notify me that he had been wounded. And when they found out that someone had called me right after, they were not happy and they wanted to know who had called me. And so I, they asked, who called you? I gave them the name of who called me, and they questioned me multiple times, but that's who it was. And really what had happened is um, a friend of mine had just told me about a really fun boating trip they had gone on with some neighbors, and the guy who called me, I got his name mixed up with the boating story, and I put the two names together, and I was sure that that was the name. And that it wasn't even a real person. So luckily, I didn't remember the name. And I know that they changed the protocol after that, after a firefight, all the cords got cut because I had gotten information immediately from the Internet also. And so I know that they, they changed that. So 31 hours afterwards, I spoke with the um, head of the, is it the battalion from Utah, and they knew that Lane needed a, a non-medical attendant to fly back. And so I was the obvious choice. And so they arranged for me to fly right over to Germany and arranged for um, liaison to pick me up at the airport, which they did in Frankfurt, Germany, and then went to Launchstuhl Hospital and Lane wasn't there. And they didn't know where he was. So luckily he had called me. And I knew that he was at Hamburg University, and we went to the university. They had, um, as you drive up, they had a guard tower, kind of. It wasn't really a guard, but like an information booth. And so I went up there and asked for Lane Morris. And, of course, the guy spoke mostly German. And so he's looking on his list and telling me, nine, nine. And I'm like, oh, please. And telling him the name, and I wrote it down. He's like, nine, nine, and he wasn't there. And so I was like, we didn't know where Lane was. And so then as we were driving out, there was a a map of the university hospital area, and there was an eye eye clinic or an eye section. So I said, well, let's just go over there. So we went to that building, and I just started walking down the hall and started looking in every single room. And it, I found him on the second floor at the end. So him seeing me nervous and flat, well, yeah, because I couldn't find you. <laughs> but well, it, I was like, yeah, what took you so long? <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, I was so relieved when I saw him because I thought he was going to 
just be hamburger face and just look awful. And I thought you looked awesome. Oh, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no, he did. He was very handsome. He only had a, a badge on uh, a bandage. He had a bandage on half of his face is all. So what was the impact of that experience? You don't realize what the impact is at the time. You know, I, I remember, um, I mean, I knew my eye was bad, but I also, uh, the mission, I wanted to go back. And so I thought, well, I'll go to Bagram and let them look at my eye, but, you know, then I'll, I'll get back. And so while I was at Bagram, is they, you know, all the generals come through to give you your purple heart. And uh, this general actually said a, a wise thing to me as they gave me this purple heart. He said, this, I, th- I know this doesn't mean anything to you right now, but it will. And I remember, I remember thinking, yeah, I, whatever, throw it, you know, throw it under the bed where they got all my personal stuff, I, you know, whatever. Just didn't, didn't mean anything to me at that time. I, could, I couldn't have cared less. I mean, now I cherish that thing. But uh, at the time, it didn't mean anything to me. I just wanted to get back to my guys and, and do what we were supposed to be doing there, what we went there for. And this, all these people were just in my way. Um, so you, you, just don't, you just don't understand it. And I didn't understand it until they said, we got to send you to Germany to get this done, that you realize, wow, this might be more permanent than I had thought, and this might change everything. But you certainly don't think about how this is going to impact my life going forward. And I mean, I just didn't think about any of that. It was just everything was was in in the way of what I, I wanted to be doing, and that was being back with my team and following up on all this stuff. It was kind of, you know, we're now, it's an exciting and it's a good time, so to speak, in a, in a weird, twisted way. And I was missing all of that. Um, so so how, did you, how do you deal with that when you realize? That it's over? Yeah. That that was pretty depressing, you know. And when I say when you realize it's over, um, you realize that okay, you're missing an eye, and it it takes a while to figure out that all right, I'm probably I'm no longer going to be a shooter. I'm no longer be going to be on an A team. Um, I'm going to be a, a trainer or, you know, filling up whatever. And there's not that there's anything wrong with any of those jobs, but it's not what I wanted to do in the military. And so realizing that I wasn't going to be able to do what I wanted to do in the military anymore and that I wasn't going to get that eye back um, and that it was forever. You know, you can you can stay strong for about a month. You're like, all right, I'm going to, you know, or focus like a laser beam on transitioning. And, and, and I remember laying there in bed one night and kind of congratulating myself saying, you know, I've really handled this very well. And now I'm ready to go back to my life. And that was the point for me where I realized, oh, wow, it, this is, this is my life. This is forever you know, I, this hasn't been a test that I've just passed, and now you get your eye back. You, you, everything that that for me um, was a start of a kind of a spiral downwards, as you realize that it, the impact of the of the whole thing. Lisa, what did you see? So I, when you were talking about that just now, I was thinking about actually being back at launch tool. So they had. Um, well, he just checked himself out of the German hospital and we just jumped in the car with the liaison and his wife and drove back to Launchstuhl. And so they put him in the hospital and they checked me into the Fisher house, which was right close to the hospital. And at, for like, I think 
I think Lane stayed in the hospital maybe a day and a half with me being there. And then he pretty much checked himself out and just came over to the Fisher house with me. And that time was really, really hard because he was angry and in pain and headaches. And I remember one time I just, I just took off, of course, running. And I just, I ran as fast as I could for as far as I could and just cried while I was running because it was really hard. It was really hard. I don't remember that. I know you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that was good at the Fisher House is, is you were able to meet some of the other people that were staying there. And there was one couple that was there and the, the husband had cancer and he had like six months left to live. Hmm. And we sat in the lobby or the family room area and, and you talked with him for quite a while. And afterwards we were talking in a room and, and you just, you were so grateful because you knew you were going to live and you were with someone who wasn't going to live. And that put a lot of perspective, I know, for you. At that time, it was really helpful. Hmm. I don't remember that either. <laughs> you, you remember the good, you know, you remember the good stuff. You really do. I don't know if that's human nature, but but um, Lisa always comments that when when I get together with the guys, about how we just, it's just a laugh, you know, it's just laugh stories and everything it's only the good times and uh you know she gets all the wives get slightly irritated because like all these things all these stories i never heard until you guys get together and then all this stuff comes out and you've never told me that stuff well it's just the way it is i guess well usually with the other military people they're asking the right questions i didn't know he was on a qrf team so that was a reveal just a few minutes ago. So I I really like when he's with other military people. So what was it like when you got home and you see your children for the first time? You know, for them, it was um, just dad's home. Cause they, and I just, they didn't, you know, you think it's a big deal. And the kids are all, I mean, they're all over you. They're hugging you, everything. And you, and you get home and half hour later, they're like, hey, can I go over to my, go to my friend's house? You're like, oh, I guess the kids are fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I guess you can go over to your friend's house, and 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 so that, you know, seeing them was was great. Um, and that's such a comfortable. You just settle so quickly into that comfortable role of of parent and child that that was a very easy relationship to to take back up. You know, to to become the dad again. It's a little harder with your spouse than it is with your children. So I I thought that went fairly smoothly with my children. Liesl, did you notice anything with the kids? No, they. one of them really did ask if they could go over to their friend's house. But when he got home, the media was involved. And so at the airport, there were cameras and, and, and reporters. And then at the house, our Neighbors had decorated the home, and it had a really nice homecoming for him. And so there was a lot of excitement and joy that he was home. And it really was. As soon as everybody kind of left, they, they were like, okay, well, that was fun. <laughs> and they just write back, kids are so resilient, really resilient. But for for the spouse who's at home, they're the ones that's running the show the whole time. And now the other parent comes back and you're going to, what, you want to have some of that control back? So that that's a real... All of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a real difficult relationship thing to work back into. But even harder because when Lane got back, he couldn't drive. He couldn't do much of anything because of his left eye adjusting to doing all the work. So he'd end up having to lay down and have his eyes closed for a long time. And I still felt like I was a single parent 
and also trying to take care of him and help him get better. And that was hard. We did use a lot of humor at home. We had an air hockey table that uh, he'd play air hockey with the kids, and he couldn't hit the, what is that, a puck? Yeah. And we kids just laugh and laugh, thought that was so funny because he just, he'd try to hit it and he'd just miss it because of the depth perception. And, it yeah, we tried to have a positive attitude, I guess. And I think it only took two weeks before I was fed up with your backseat driving and I drove you over to Bingham High School in the driving range and parked the car and said, okay, get out, you're driving. And so he did. He drove around the driving range just like the high schoolers do and took that lap around a couple of times and was like, all right, you're driving yourself. And he he's been driving himself, not that he's driving himself well, but he is driving himself still. You know, it that that transition back. I mean, you just wouldn't think. You just don't think it's going to be a big deal. I mean, I was I mean, I turned 40 in Afghanistan. So, I I'm not an 18-year-old kid that doesn't have a world experience, a world view. My my father was a state department guy, so I mean, I was raised in countries all over the world. And so, I and I had a family, a house, a job. I mean, all things to come back to. You just, I just didn't think it'd be a big deal. It was, you know, this is what I did on my extended summer vacation, and now I'm going back to it. And I, and I remember sleeping with my rifle, and it seemed like the most natural, reasonable thing in the world. In the in the same house with the same family that I've been living with for, you know, for twenty years, and I'm like, well, yeah, of course, it's like with a rifle, you, yeah. And I, I mean, it only took a couple of it was a couple of weeks before I suddenly realized that is about the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> I put the rifle away because you know I've been sleeping without a rifle pretty successfully in America for my whole life, and so. Um, and so that, oh, I think that was a little bit eye opening to me to realize, wow, my, my, my perspective is a little bit warped here or is affected more than I thought it was. The, when the planes coming overhead, when they, they drop their landing gear uh, right over South Jordan, right over our house. And, and when that landing gear comes down into the wind, it is this, and it, I mean, it sounds exactly like an incoming rocket, exactly. And I, and you know, the first couple of times I hit the I hit the floor, um, and after that you realize what it is. But it, and I didn't hit the floor. But it was a couple of years before my heart wouldn't react. You hear that, and and you realize, wow, my. Breathing's I'm breathing heavy and my heartbeat's going and and I know I'm in America so I know that this is not um, a problem but I, I'm still I still have that reaction into it and so that was kind of my first clue that wow this is a little bit more in depth than I than I thought it would be and so I I, I think that's just I think that's typical to anybody who comes back my case being being wounded and having all that transition i think just made it doubly hard and like i said when i when i finally realized that this isn't some exercise that i've now you know successfully passed and that it's forever um that you know after all the the tv cameras have left and people are no longer patting you on the back and buying you dinner and and you know, inviting you to do all kinds of fun things and kind of treating you like you're, I mean, I had an extended 15 minutes of fame. That's for sure. Um, and so after all that gets withdrawn and it's just you dealing with that, that's when I think it's just, it's hard. It's hard for everybody, but it's, it's especially hard if you're if you have those added handicaps of being of being wounded and having to adjust the the reality of your life and your abilities.
To answer the question, did you have professional help? The answer is no. <laughs> he would not go for professional help. I begged, and he said no. He never had occupational therapy. Nothing. It was all trial and error, doing stuff at home, trying to figure out how to how to do everything. So I wish... I wish he had been willing, but he thought he was fine. Well, I mean, it, it's, I was fine. Uh-huh. I mean, it's, I mean, for the, for the, you know, I remember asking the doctor. I mean, it wasn't that I wasn't willing. I said to the doctor, "So we we got some kind of like physical therapy or something, so I can get used to being left-eyed, you know, one-eyed, left-eyed." And he said, no, your your body will figure it out. It, it'll it adjust on itself. And I went, all right, well, I guess we're good then. And that was and, the extent of professional help that he got. And that was at Walter Reed a week after he was wounded, or maybe two weeks after he was wounded, and he thought he was fine. So, Other than the eye. I'd, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to talk to that doctor again today. <laughs> but, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it. it okay, in... in I don't know. In hindsight, I mean, one of the one of the problems with the whole situation was that I was in the National Guard. And so I remember actually talking to Liesl and saying to her early on in the process, I swear I'm the I got to be the first guy in the history of the army to get wounded because no one knows what to do with me. You know, everywhere I went, oh, you're a guard guy. I mean, and they wanted to just stick me back at Fort Bragg, and for I, I'd been there for years, and that's when I Lisa keeps talking about me walking out on people. I just I I probably did that five times, because the 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 regular army would just be well, we're taking care of you, and we'll and we'll get to it. And I had I had a life and a fam, all that to get back to. So I'd finally just say, I'm going home. I, I'm done. I'm out of here. And so. Yeah, it it, um, it was it was tough that way because they didn't know what to do with me. It just wasn't set up. The system wasn't set up that way. And so, would it have been nice to have some kind of counseling? I, I don't know. I don't. I think I'm fine. I think I've always been fine. <laughs> I just since this is a podcast, Liesl is nodding her head very vigorously. <laughs> that yes, you probably could have used some counseling. <laughs> Well, you know, you you did good. There's a couple things I wish we had done differently. Like, I wish we had moved our bedroom to the basement because I didn't know that every night that was happening to you until years later. The, the airplanes. The airplanes. Yeah, and I that still would hear have them. been yeah, <laughs> that would have been an easy fix. But you just don't think. I mean, this is the master bedroom, and this is where you sleep. You don't think to think outside of the box and move your room to the basement so you can't hear that. But at the same time, you also realize that a reasonable person should be able to deal with that. And so, yeah, did it bother me? It did. But I also said to myself, you can't go the rest of your life being scared of airplanes dropping their landing gear. You just got to get used to it. It's not the end of the world that your heart beats faster and your breathing quickens because... The airplane flies over. That's just part of the transition back. And so, you know, I, I, you don't need a doctor to help you figure that out. My heart goes out to these young kids who are 18 years old. They've, they're not quite done with home, but they're not quite on their own. And... So they're they've joined the they've joined the military. It's their really their first time away from home. They don't have a whole bunch of world experience, a whole bunch of life experience to to tell them like I did. Okay, this is what normal people do, and you need to be. I did. I mean, I had forty years of life to tell me to inform me of what my behavior needed to be, what was expected, and what I wanted it to be. When you're 18 years old, you don't have any of that. And you go from your your senior prom in a, a 
from a small town or a big town, but it, you're 18 years old, and next thing you know, you're in Afghanistan, and you see some terrible things, have some terrible experiences. You come back to the States, and you your worldview has so radically changed. The value of life, um, people, your view of people, your view of yourself, all of these things are 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 so changed and you don't have the anchors that I did. And so you have these young people that are, they're too old to live at home, but they don't have a new, they don't have a life to grasp onto. And so they're just lost. They're just floating, trying to find, trying to find themselves, trying to find their way in an, in a world that is, they cannot believe how different it is from the six months before they left. Uh, my heart goes out to those, and they, those, they need that, that counseling, that, um, that ability to stick together, to talk about things, to guide each other, to help each other. I try and be part of that with uh, several groups that I volunteer with because I think that is that is so helpful for those for those young people. I just, that wasn't my situation. If you or any veteran you know is feeling self-destructive or suicidal, please don't hesitate to use the Veterans Crisis Line by either calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1 or by texting 838-255 or by visiting www.veteranscrisisline.net. This 24-7 confidential service is for all veterans, all service members, the National Guard and Reserve, their family members, and their friends. Join us again for the next episode of We Happy Few. If you have comments about the show, please contact us by email at tips at loudmouthproject.com or on Twitter at loudmouthjason. Check out our website at loudmouthproject.com and navigate to the We Happy Few page. You can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcast iTunes, and other places where you find interesting shows. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps grow our audience. We would like to thank our producer and editor, Josh Tilton, and our creative director, Amy Donaldson, for adding the spit and polish to our show. I'm Jason Comstock, and until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and stay engaged. We Happy Few is a production of the Loudmouth Project.